Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a cool autumn day in the capital is Christian Robson. Christian is the proprietor at Oliver Brown, an aspirational British menswear label and a leading retailer to sartorially aware gentlemen that want traditional and high quality British made tailoring. Uh, Christian, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Um, Normally, at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But to what extent has it affected you and your business? Uh, The COVID-19? Absolutely. Yeah, so we've been uh, sadly very affected. We are very connected to weddings and events, um, uh, social gatherings, parties, uh, black tie parties, evening tie events, white tie events, um, and so we're very we, weddings is our big time of year. And then our massive um, Ascot Royal Ascot is the biggest thing that we do, and we have been hit so far by about 1.7 million quid by all these things not working, mainly Ascot. Um, so it's properly hit us, sadly. And even when there is hopefully a working vaccine in place and coronavirus itself is no longer a tangible issue, do you think that this sort of period could lead to a prolonged COVID hangover for um, your industry in particular, just because of consumer confidence and anxiety about going out to sort of mass events with lots of people? I think there'll be a pent-up demand. We think, we pray, we think Ascot will be the biggest it's ever been next year if they're allowed to have the full attendance. Uh, we believe that weddings, we know a lot have been cancelled this year, so they'll be out next year. So we should see an upside of that, but then we'll see a downside of probably spending generally that are not connected to events because people have been hit um, financially by this. So I think overall we should see a good growth next year where we're looking at possibly having two pop-up shops because we might take advantage of the rental issues that are going on in the capital and not mm-hmm. many shops open. So it might be in a bit of an opportunity for us, um, but you just can't tell because it's so uncertain. Uh, but I think the feedback we're getting from our customers is that. And I think a lot of our customers are fed up and want to get on with life. Mm. Um, I personally don't think the vaccine will make too much of a difference. Um, I think... We need to do herd immunity. We need to get on with life now and look after the vulnerable. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, I think that what the government is doing is completely wrong. But, um, and I think businesses need to go and get business and get on with life, sadly. 
There have been a few concerns about what the government has been doing in more recent weeks. I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view. In the early stages of the pandemic, do you think that they were showing the leadership that um, the situation and indeed the country merited by stepping in and supporting businesses with the measures that they did put in? Yes, I thought Rishi was brilliant. I thought Boris was brilliant. Um, And yes, I thought the leadership was very much there. It was very clear then uh, at the beginning of it. And also bearing in mind that this has never, this sort of thing has never happened before. Um, In our lifetime, I think they did well. And now they've completely lost their way when it comes to business. Yes, uh, there are a lot of concerns coming from uh, businesses, um, particularly from the hospitality sector, as I'm sure you'll know, with the impact of the more recent measures that have come in. So it's certainly going to be a very interesting uh, few months as far as business is concerned, just to see what the impact of prolonged restrictions is uh, going to be. Because, of course, the inkling is that it's going to be a largely detrimental effect of not being able to resume normal life as quickly as uh, we'd all hoped. Um, Just moving on from COVID-19 ever so uh, slightly, uh, Christian, to address leadership in a little bit more of a broader sense. I do always like to ask the question to guests that come onto the program. When you think of a leader and a leader's role, what should a leader ultimately do in your eyes? What does that word literally mean to you? Um, a leader in my, my eyes is, is, is making uh, clear, good decisions that incorporate everybody's thoughts, um, who, whoever that person is leading, and lead by example. And um, I certainly think none of that's happening at the moment. Yeah, so we're not necessarily seeing that type of leadership at this point in time. And I think a lot of what the government has done in more recent weeks is certainly dismaying um, an awful amount of people. So with that in mind, what do you really want to see from them in the uh, the coming weeks? Um, I want to, my point of view, my personal point of view is to shield the vulnerable and start business and get everybody pre-65 to get on with life as usual and go through this. If we get herd immunity, even better because vaccines don't work generally. And it'll, it, this is just delaying the inevitable. We can, we need to get on with business. Life needs to get back together. And that's the most, most important thing that could happen now. We cannot stall this thing. It's never been achieved to, to sort of pandemic out like this. We should be just doing what Sweden's doing. End of story. Now, um, regardless of how we have handled the uh, the pandemic situation as a country, one thing that we have seen during this time, out of necessity because of the lockdown, is a real amount of innovation and change within business, particularly toward the uh, the technological side of things. Um, re- with regards to yourselves, of course, I know given the nature of your business, that's not necessarily possible as such doing everything remotely but um have you actually learned anything from this sort of pandemic experience and the challenges that it has thrown up that you've had to overcome uh yes we're now going to see certain customers um and uh so we 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 are going to see bespoke customers in the houses or their offices doing a lot more traveling tailoring seeing big customers um just reaching out more um, and not necessarily sitting back so much like we used to, not that we were on our heels, but we, we, we were very lucky. We had a very booming business before this kicked in. We were just about to open two more shops. Um, so uh, I think otherwise, apart from that, we've, we've made our teams a closer knit. It's probably a better environment. Mm. Um, and 
uh, we're very lucky. We've we've only had to let go of three staff so far, and one of those people wanted to go. So, um, and two were only just started this very quickly growing business in March. So, it's it, we've had a lot of people, luckily, that are on um, um, part time, so they they have not come back. So um, we've just become a closer team and we're more reactive probably than we were before. Um, uh, so it's probably made us stronger um, as a business but and cutting costs where we can. So that's inevitably made us a bit more tight-knit. I think you do tend to find, don't you, that in a time of adversity such as this, people tend to bring out the best in themselves and stand up and be counted. And that doesn't just go for leaders that have had to act as beacons of inspiration, motivation and reassurance, but also the Mm. employees as well. They've really been working hard, haven't they, during this um, period? And that goes for so many businesses out there. Yeah, true. And just thinking about the... um, effects of the uh, the lockdown period do you see that some of the changes to our working practices could well be here to stay in future or do you see a return to normality in vogue once this virus is no longer an issue at the forefront of our minds yeah i think i mean banking will be affected now i think not many people need to go to the bank anymore that's one thing but uh cash will become less of a thing to produce although people still mm. like paying a bit of cash um but i think uh, the city, people going back to work, I think that would be gradual. But I think as soon as it's over, people will then be expected to go back to work um, properly um, in the city because that's obviously affecting us because we sell suits and we're not selling as many suits. It's a big issue for a lot of businesses in sort of city centre areas, isn't it, that rely on the passing trade of commuters because a lot of businesses, particularly within hospitality as well, are suffering um, as a result of the uh, the shift toward work from home. So there is also that to consider as well when we're weighing up our working practices. Mm. Certainly is going to be a very interesting time for a business over the next few months as we see what the government is planning on doing next and just how swiftly we can return to some form of normality with that side of things. And uh, just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme question, because I am conscious that we are uh, running short of time, I would like to talk about the uh, the future because we know that probably until the end of March, judging on the Prime Minister's announcement just a fortnight ago now, um, we are going to have to continue to persist with this for quite some time yet and adjust to the this new normal, as they call it. Um, But over that period of time, and indeed up until this point next year, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Oliver Brown? And where do you see yourselves being in 12 months? I want us to be back to where we were as soon as possible. Um, And I want to, more importantly to me as a business, I employed 22 people when we were uh, up to March. I'm now down to... um, Seven, I want to be back fully employing people doing what we should be doing in in my business. And I think it's an incredible achievement that we've managed to keep these people employed. Mm. Uh, I think Richie's definitely helped us out keeping those people employed and what he's doing next month. But it's a cost to us, you know, to keep these people on. And it's very important to me to do that because that's where I see the major problems coming next when people can't feed their families, they're going after their loved ones. And that's my my that's my absolute goal is to get the business up and running and to get all those people I've made redundant back into work. 
it's a hugely important saying because there are so many people out there that may well be downhearted by the current situation and the impact that it's had on their employment prospects um, in particular. So opportunities being there, it's going to be so, so important in the uh, the coming months. And it's so fantastic to see that you're um, really trying to uh, to make that possible. Um, Christian, I have to yeah. say, um, it's been so, so inspiring having you join us on the uh, the programme this afternoon and a really enlightening experience at that. And just given uh, the extent to which it has been intellectually stimulating, I think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next 12 months and welcome you back onto the show just to see how yeah. things are coming along and we can assess just how far yeah. the country's come since then. Yeah, and I think it's, it's also right to point out that um, we, we will be phasing out anything that's connected to China and my business, which is a very small amount. Our outerwear, which we buy in the van of Shoffle, um, we will be stopping selling that. I think it's very important that we don't put all our eggs in one basket as we have. And at the moment, it looks as though that country is very, very dangerous. And so I, I, I want, I fully believe in that, that, that the product needs to be European and most of ours English. And I think that's very important for people to start doing um, also. Certainly going to be a very, very interesting time, uh, particularly with regard to people's attitudes towards what's going on um, over there uh, for certain. And that is something that we will definitely be keeping a very, very close eye on ourselves at the uh, the Leaders' Council. Um, Christian, I have to say, it's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you onto the uh, the show today uh, once again. And until we do hopefully get to speak again at some point in the next few months, please do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods with this yet, as we've seen, especially with the government measures in place but let's just keep our fingers crossed that we will get through this sooner rather than later well then you thank you very much for calling it's been such a pleasure christian thank you ever so much thank you thanks very much thank you and for all of our listeners tuning into the program today do please continue to look after yourselves as well and others because it does make a tangible difference in keeping people safe and saving lives um next up on today's program we'll be joined by jonathan white for his exclusive interview with former england cricket captain sir andrew strauss um during his playing days sir andrew joined an illustrious club of just three england captains to have secured the ashes both at home and away in australia as well as racking up the second highest number of test victories for an england skipper in his history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew spent a brief period of time as Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board and has become a champion for charitable concerns and mental health causes. That interview between Jonathan and Sir Andrew will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former Director of Cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, 
you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in, a, in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure was like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's 
easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, and privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was always brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired Another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women 
young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match was a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. 
And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.